So welcome, all of you. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Or, well, whatever time zone you're in. <laughs> for me, it's, it's uh, one in the afternoon, but yeah. So, let's see. Let's have a look at the questions that we have for today. There we go. Now, the, the first question to come in was from uh, Thomas Bernardes. Um, so, um, I will read the question. Shiladasa, actually, I think that uh, you need to press show more comments again because uh, I think Adrian's, yeah, Adrian's question was the first one that I see. Ah, okay. Oh, oh okay. I thought... <laughs> I was good looking at the bottom of the list, thinking that was the oldest question. Um, was the, the first question to come in, the oldest question, the one that's at the top of the list? Yeah, that's you can see there's a 6, 6D next to it, which means it's been out there for six days, so the other ones are more recent. <laughs> okay, good. I, 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 never, uh, I never claimed to be awakened to modern technology. <laughs> so, it, it makes sense though, we're adding to the bottom of the list. Okay, so the first question, Adrian, and uh, you can see the Adrian is on the screen. Yep. Oh, there you go. Adrian and Jamie. Is that how you, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing your name correctly, probably not. Well, uh, in English it's like that. <laughs> Adrian and James. Okay, <laughs> Adrian and James, okay. Uh, we are from Spain. Yes. Um, I, I'm going to read your question, okay? Unless you want to read yourself, but uh, I already... Uh, we are two meditators from Spain and have been practicing daily for two years. One does one or two sessions, the other three or four, breathing and walking one hour meditation. Furthermore, we have listened to several hours online content and read the first chapter. We have introduced changes in our habits and practicing virtue. Uh, made big progress. Uh, not so much in meditation practice that has been in stage, mainly at stage two. Hmm. First of us is stagnant with difficulties to add more sessions, having the free time. The other feels continuous progress, but with a lot of mind wandering and Okay, so that's a good background. Thank you for thank you for hearing that with us. It's it's helpful in terms of your questions. So here's the questions: What makes people not achieve stage ten in one year, and how much time does meditators, meditators take until stage four? Uh, we regard that stage as critical. Well, I I agree with that. That that stage. Uh, is critical in that it really defines the point at which you uh, acquired. It's it's the point at which you you are now actually 
you can call yourself a, a meditator because uh, you know rather than somebody who's who's still trying to uh, who's beginning trying to meditate. This is the point at which you can keep the meditation object uh, in consciousness, uh, even even in the face of. Uh, of and um, so, how do, uh, what makes people not achieve stage 10 in one year? There's so many things that are involved in it. Um, each person is different, of course, with different backgrounds, different conditioning, different problems. Uh, uh, of all kinds of uh, sorts. And one of the things that can uh, take a lot of time is uh, uh, somebody who's had a lot of psychological trauma, uh, various issues that they need to reconcile and, and work out. Um, this can increase the time that it takes. Um, but there's a lot of much more straightforward and easy to deal with uh, factors like how how diligent you are uh, how careful you are following following the instructions and one of the biggest obstacles um, not just in the early stages because it can reappear uh, later on as well is that of trying too hard and making too much effort um, because this this is a very real obstacle. Think of it this way: that um, trying comes from a place of the very illusion that you're trying to get beyond, which is that uh, you that there exists some uh, distinctly real and separate agent who is uh, responsible for. Uh, making things happen and uh, this will manifest in a lot of ways including uh, muscle tension um, a higher degree of distractibility because you know you're you're making that force you're you're uh, uh, you're, you're creating an intensity and meditation needs to be relaxed needs to be uh, you, you need to be diligent. If you're not diligent, it's going to take you longer to succeed. But if instead of just being diligent in terms of following the instructions and not not succumbing to any kind of laxity or daydreaming or things like that, but not going too far to the point where you're trying to force something to happen, your your uh, distraction. Uh, uh, a gross distraction arises in stage four and you try to squish it down rather than just simply uh, um, redirecting and strengthening your attention to the meditation object. So both lacking diligence and being too effortful can slow a person down. The consistency of your practice, the duration of your practice, these can all be factors. On your personal life situation, these are things that can enter into it. How often 
is the regularity of your meditation interrupted by some uh, work-related or family-related or other crisis that makes it uh, difficult to maintain. Uh, uh, I could just go on and on. There, there are so many factors that enter into it. Um, since, since you're with us, Adrian and, and, and James, are there, are there more specifics to this question that maybe I could address more productively if I knew about? Uh, no, it, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, we were yeah. just uh, trying to trying to find uh, in what you were saying uh, something that helps us that helps us to achieve stage four uh, more easily than we are yeah. actually finding it. Okay, so what you're what you're actually asking is for some tips and advice on how to uh, to progress more rapidly than you have been able to so far. Is that put, yes, put yeah. take it on the other side? It's not it's 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 not what what could keep you from progressing, but but what can you do to progress more rapidly? Um, and you and and that's that's why it makes sense that you. Uh, described your current situation. So um, the regularity of practice seems to be there for both of you. And you're doing walking meditation as well. Um, sounds like you're doing a, a, a lot of the right things. Um, so I, I would come back to, you're having trouble reaching stage four the first thing that I would uh, ask, and hopefully it's a simple answer, is uh, are you really clear on the difference between attention and peripheral awareness, and are you able to use introspective awareness to recognize, um, uh, to, to recognize the presence of gross distractions before they cause forgetting or mind-wandering? Well, um, the short answer is no. Uh, I mean, we uh, intellectually can uh, describe what what is the difference between attention and peripheral awareness. We have heard about many analogies, uh, the analogy of the light and the vision analogy. Uh, but uh, I'd, I'd say but that, that we, <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Uh, sorry, please. Uh. Okay, but well, I, I, I think I think that may be um, really the root of of the problem because knowing the difference intellectually isn't what's important. It's being able to distinguish the two so that you can use them, so that you can use introspective awareness to achieve the goals, uh, especially of the third and the fourth path. What the uh, third and third and fourth stage. The second stage, the second stage, you're mostly relying on, uh, you know, the the mind's natural reward system. So you're rewarding yourself for the for the kind of mental events that are conducive to uh, shortening mind wandering and increasing the periods of stable attention when you have the opportunity to start exercising. 
uh, introspective awareness. But most of what stage two is about is is really um, becoming starting to recognize more and more um, what is going on in your mind in those periods when when the mind is not not wandering. It's the beginning of the process. But in stage one, there's that four-step transition to the meditation object. If you're not experientially clear on the difference between attention and awareness, what those four, what the first three of those four steps is really all about is playing with attention and noticing the difference, learning to recognize the difference between uh, awareness, peripheral awareness, and attention. Beginning to work with it extrospectively. So extrospective attention or extrospective awareness rather of distractions and uh, um, no what am I talking about uh, <laughs> extrospective awareness of whatever is going on of everything that's going on in the in the four-step trans tra uh, transition you want to develop really strong awareness is primarily extrospective. In stage two, now you're beginning to want to develop introspective awareness. In stage three, you want that to be really strong. But if you don't know experientially what it is, if it's not clear to you yet what it is, then you're going to have more trouble doing that. Uh, I mean, you can do it. You'll come, you, can, you can learn to distinguish between the two. But... That, uh, that four-step transition really is an opportunity to play around with the two. And then once you, have, once you have that ability, then you can do things like focus in more closely on the meditation object and see how your, your peripheral awareness collapses or uh, open up your peripheral awareness and see how that, uh, the uh, clarity of perception of the meditation object inattention uh, diminishes and just move back and forth in that balance. Now, now you're actually using introspective awareness and attention. So you've not only come to where you can recognize and distinguish between the two. Now, this is going to continue through second, third, fourth uh, stages of development. And where you're moving in the direction of being able to use introspective awareness to recognize the events that are going to lead to, uh, in stage four, gross distraction, in stage three, forgetting, and uh, uh, in, stage, in stage two, you're basically just recognizing, you're, you're just practicing uh, recognizing awareness when it's present while you're focusing your attention on the meditation object. So if you can, if you can get really clear on uh, the distinction between attention and awareness, I think your progress, you're going to be able to use them in a way that you greatly speed up your progress. Probably the time that you put in now, you're, you're going to get a payoff from that because now you're going to be bringing in the missing ingredient and, uh, and so all the work you've done up to now, you're going to, you're going to get the payoff for. You mean that we should 
be able to recognize we are uh, using both of those uh, faculties independent in individually i mean for example now i am using uh, attention and now i'm using awareness no it's just uh, i kind of it's 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 knowing and uh, recognizing that you, you can just use attention well you can but you don't the only reason for just using attention would be to, to say, ah, it's just like I thought it was. There's really no reason. What you want to do is to recognize that both are present simultaneously. Ah, I'm paying attention to my breath. I'm paying attention to the sensations of the beginning and the ending of the end breath, for example. But at the same time, I'm peripherally aware of thoughts coming and going in the background, I'm perfectly aware of sensations in my body and sounds in my environment and so forth. What you're after is recognizing when they're both there, that, that they're always both there simultaneously. Unless, I mean, your peripheral awareness may be collapsed down to nothing, in which case what you really experience is primarily attention. But you don't really want that. You want to be able to see, you want to be able to recognize that they're both present at the same time. You see, this creates a scenario where, aha, I'm following my breath. Aha, but in my peripheral awareness, I see that there is a, there is a thought, and I see that my attention keeps alternating back and forth with that thought, and it takes away from, from the stability of attention on the breath. So when you can see those two things happening simultaneously, ah, yes, I'm following the breath, but my attention is also alternating with this distraction in the background. Uh, I used an example of a thought. Maybe it's a noise. Maybe it's a dog barking outside. Usually that will trigger a thought about the dog barking outside, but it may be just preceded by a feeling of annoyance. These are two things that are going on simultaneously. Your attention may go to something in peripheral awareness, and you recognize, ah, my, my, my attention has moved to the sound of the barking dog, or my attention has moved to this thought. And then that allows you to, to uh, focus your attention more closely on the meditation object, so that it no longer is alternating as much with what's in the background. Now, once you recognize the difference between the background, that's awareness, and what you're focusing on, that's attention, when you're, you're not at this point trying to get rid of everything in the background. You want it to be there. You just don't want it to start receiving enough attention that it's going to destabilize the attention on the meditation object. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, yeah. we understand, and we are. We actually uh, have noticed that before because uh, obviously the, those two concepts are in the whole in, in the whole book and in almost every uh, audio that, that we have heard about. And we obviously uh, realize that if we don't understand or we cannot recognize them clearly, something we won't be able to follow the instructions properly. Yes, and that, there you've got the essence. But uh, we we uh, we kind of get uh, we kind of guess that uh, we would need some certain uh, of mind to be able to recognize them clearly. Yes, or or just or, or a normal person who may just start meditating uh, who would uh, be able to recognize the difference between the two. 
And you see, the two are present for everyone all the time, but there's no recognition of it. You look at most people that talk about the mind, you look at most people that talk about consciousness, they use awareness and attention interchangeably. You look at most meditation teachers and most meditation manuals, and you know you go back to, to the early Buddhists themselves, they didn't recognize the difference between them. When you can recognize them as two distinct things that are happening simultaneously, it allows you to use them. And that's what speeds up the process of meditation enormously in, in this system compared to meditation systems that don't acknowledge, that don't recognize the distinction and don't teach you how to use those two faculties to reinforce each other and support each other. So this, this is what's at the essence of it, is uh, developing that ability to, you know, first you have to recognize, then to use these two faculties interactively. And that's what leads to rapid progress. And so that's, you know, if you're, if you're struggling towards stage four and have been for a long time, then that's where I would put my focus and getting to the place where you can not only recognize but use these two faculties independently or interactively, either one, whichever is most important to the practice that you're doing. That's going to carry right through to the end. You're right. So I, I hope that's helpful. I hope that. Yes. Yeah, thank you. If you want to skip the rest of our questions, because we, we took too much time and there's a, a lot of other questions. Uh, yeah. there, there's no problem and we can just ask them again in the next Q&A. That's good. I appreciate that. And, and I, think I've used, I think I've given you something to work with which will uh, help a lot there. So. Okay. Thank you. So, I mean, should we just take these in order? Or might as well. Nathan Becker. Completely overcoming the fetters of sense, desire, and ill will is a tall order for a lay person in a society which bombards us with sense pleasures and divides us with adversarial state of politics and the media. Boy, you could sure say that again. That is really true. On the other hand, to be even, to, to even be able to begin, begin the process of overcoming the fetters of sense, desire, and, and ill will in that environment, it... It's an enormous achievement, you know. Um, there, there was a, a, a geshe that I spent some time with, and we talked a lot about um, um, what it's like, uh, uh, what the path is like for uh, an ordained person versus a lay person. And uh, he, uh, he and I both agreed uh, to uh, a statement that he made is that is that um, the the path of the ordained practitioner is easier, but at the same time not as powerful uh, as the practice of uh, 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 as a lay person. And uh, there is the example of the uh, of the bhikkhu who went went off into seclusion, uh, spent a lot of time practicing, uh, felt that he had uh, achieved awakening and had overcome desire and aversion. So he returned back to, he was on his way back to rejoin his sangha, 
you know, uh, and uh, as now what he thought of, of what he had accomplished in his solitude. The first uh, crossroads that he came to, back in those days, every crossroads was a marketplace. And the first crossroads that he came to, and the noise and the squabbling of the people and the road being covered with animal dung that he had to walk through and all this other stuff, and he lost it. And he realized that, wow, it's easy, it's easy to uh, entertain these particular states that he had achieved in, in isolation. But for it to become not a state, but to become a, uh, to represent a permanent shift in perception and response to situations, um, you actually need the resistance. You need the pressure. You need, you need the problems that are, are presented. Now, had he stayed in the monastery, that would have been provided by his association with his fellows, fellow bhikkhus. Um, so think of it this way. As a lay person, the challenge is greater than if you were in a monastery and all you had to deal with was the other monks who had a lot of the same goals and, and indoctrination and so forth that you do. To do so in a lay, and as a lay person, the challenge is bigger. But when you, but it can be overcome. It's not, it's not insurmountable challenge. And when you've overcome it, you have truly overcome it to a much, much deeper and more stable degree than somebody who has had less challenge to do so. What are some strategies, techniques, both on the cushion and off, that you've discovered are particularly effective for weakening? And ultimately eradicating these fetters. Uh, the, the what is referred to as the practice of virtue, and in the appendix of the book, there is the uh, uh, practice of uh, mindful review, which is intended to help bring you to the place of being able to practice strong, practice virtue, and have strong mindfulness and practice virtue in daily life. So this, this gives you these really powerful opportunities off the cushion to directly confront the fetters of self-desire, of sense-desire and ill-will. Every single time your desire inclines you to do something which is unwholesome because it's uh, going to, it's speech that's going to be injurious to somebody else or that you're going to in some way uh, enhance or, uh, or in increase the advantage to you in a particular situation at the cost of somebody else. If you recognize that mindfully and you deny that desire, that impulse, then that weakens that desire. And it also weakens the attachment to self that gives rise to that. So that's a powerful strategy off the cushion. Now, we take this on the cushion, okay? And you have desires and aversions that arise that are on the cushion. And a lot of the instruction is all about how to respond to those times when uh, a, a desire to think about something else or do something else rather than actually practice or to find some easier way to do the practice 
than uh, what you've been instructed in. Uh, so those are the kind of desires that arise on the cushion, and it has the same effect. Every time you recognize that desire for what it is and uh, let go of it, allow it to be there if it needs to be, but be, continue to be diligent in practicing according to the instruction, then the less likely that that desire is going to arise and create a problem in the future. I could go through a similar process discussing aversion. Uh, sometimes there's aversion for sitting for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's due to physical pain or whatever. But it's the same thing. It's how you respond to the aversion when it arises. And can you see you're really doing both the same, the same things on and off the cushion? You do this on the cushion uh, without even attempting to be more mindful in your daily life. You're going to end up being more mindful in your daily life just because eventually this is going to begin to overflow into your daily life. So the essence of the strategy or the technique is recognize recognize these uh, these desires, these fetters, when they arise. And um, do your best to not let them control your uh, feelings, your thoughts, uh, and, and your, your actions. In daily life speech and actions and meditation, your mental actions that you take place. That's, that's, that's ultimately the most uh, uh, effective strategy. Now, let me just add to that. In the beginning, you're not going to be successful that often. You're going to succumb. That's all right. What you do then is you become mindful of the consequences of having succumbed. So on the cushion, some thought comes up. <clears throat> it's very inviting. You succumb to the uh, temptation to pursue that thought and you pursue that thought for a period of time. Then you come back to your meditation and that you, you realize that what you've done by indulging in that is it's going to be that much longer before you're able to further advance in your practice, that you have, um, that you have conditioned yourself to make it easier to succumb to similar interesting ideas in the future. You may, that may be your experience of it. The next time you sit down and you find that an interesting thought comes up and once again you're tempted to, to pursue that rather than continue the practice, which is not as enjoyable as pursuing that thought. So hopefully, hopefully that um, points the way to how to work with these things. It does. I was... Uh you know, of course, hoping for a magic formula because this is really hard. But I think you're you're exactly right. It's uh, you say, oh. yes, I got them. Okay, great. It's it's uh, yes. We we do want magic. We mm -hmm. do, and a lot of us come to uh, come to the Dharma um, in in venues and traditions that promise us a lot of magic, but really. There isn't. There, everything is cause and effect. And then there's some causes that you can implement that are more effective and more effective more quickly, but there's no way out of the fact that it's cause and effect. And uh, no magic, you're going to have to 
you're going to have to go through the process. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. I, I, rem I seem to recall, I think it was a YouTube video of yours where you talked about um, determinism and free will. And in a given moment of time, you know, if you're mindful, uh, things aren't deterministic. You have, because of all of your past karma, you now have a set of possibilities to choose from if you're mindful. And it sounds like you use past karma. So only in that moment of mindfulness can you kind of intentionally uh, select the karma that will influence your future possibilities. So that sounds like essentially what you're talking about. You can slowly shape a more virtuous uh, karma, which means less craving in the future, less impulsivity. Right, exactly. Okay. And, and, and recognizing that and be in the free, forgiving place of recognizing that sometimes your conditioning is going to be too strong to overcome. Yeah. I am intimately familiar with that now. <laughs> right. But that's, that's not something to get mad at you. That's something to say, aha, that's where I am with this thing. So. Mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah, thank you. That's, uh, that's awesome advice. Appreciate it. Right. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, you go on, do you think some particularly distracting modern technology should be minimized or avoided? in order to cultivate a mind more capable of achieving samatha equanimity in insight. Um, you know, I, I, on the one hand, I have to admit that um, in, in recent years, I resisted for a very long, but, long time, but in the last couple of years, you know, I've, I've, I've joined the cult of the cell phone, where I have my cell phone in my pocket here. And uh, it, it, it is, uh, you know, uh, to the degree that you can, that you can uh, minimize uh, the use of smartphones and uh, this kinds of technology, the easier it will be because you formulated a certain kind of habit. Uh, I mean, what, why do you grab your cell phone or why do you check your email? Um, you're looking for that little dopamine hit that comes when, there's something interesting there, uh, right? And what you're doing is you're, you're, you're just reinforcing the habituation that is already there to pursue that which is potentially pleasurable or potentially pleasurable at the expense of something that is ultimately more beneficial to you. So it's not easy to do, though. Like, like I say, I spend a lot of time on a, on, on a computer, and I carry a laptop. And in the last two years, I carry a smartphone with me all the time. So um, hard thing to hard thing to avoid in our society. Uh, one of the things that's worth thinking about for all of us on this path, and especially anyone uh, who is interested in teaching and helping others is really to see how, how do we adapt, how can we adapt these habits rather than just deny them. But this technology has become so central to functioning in the world. I mean, we, it would be a form of withdrawal of the, from the world to say, I'm only going to check my cell phone uh, twice a day at this time and that time, and likewise with my email and so forth. <clears throat> But I think what would, what's ultimately more productive is to recognize that these technologies uh, are become, going to become more and more predominant. And how do we find a way to approach the use of these technologies 
that is actually conducive to more success in uh, in our practice and in, in, in developing insight and achieving awakening. And I don't know the answer to that yet, but we can all work on it together since we're all in the same cultural same cultural milieu. Yeah, it's a tough one. I'm, I'm reading a book uh, right now called The Distracted Mind. It's a very good book uh, by Adam Gazzley and Larry Rosen. Um, mm -hmm. It talks about how, you know, in the dopamine reward system, there's natural rewards. Everyone's kind of aware of, of food and sex being uh, things you kind of have to look out for as far as uh, addiction and natural drive goes. But uh, these researchers have discovered that information and, and sociality are also natural rewards in humans. And so that's, you know, why the, uh, the, the phone is so addicting and that dopamine game you get from checking your email or social media, for instance, is a, a double ping in the natural reward system, information and sociality. So it's kind of like, I, I, I feel as though like having that in my pocket all the time is like always having a bag of McDonald's in my hand, you know? And it's like, it's, it's just really difficult to not eat it, you know, or to, to not check your phone. Um, so... That's kind of what prompted the whole like, well, if I just don't have a bag of McDonald's in my hand all the time, I won't eat it. And then parallel to that, well, if I don't have my phone in my pocket all the time, you know, maybe I won't be driven to, uh, to check it. And to the degree that you can minimize doing that, it will be to your immediate and direct advantage. But I see it, I see it as being a bigger problem of learning how to incorporate this into um, into practice and and I, I don't know that we'll find the answer to that very soon but we have to cool well thank you that uh, totally satisfied me thank you answered my question pretty thoroughly both my questions actually I'll add another little aspect to that that I've discovered in myself is that um, you can become addicted to every time something pops into your mind that you'd like to know something about you google it Yes. Yeah. You know what? I had had that thought and just uh, talked to my friend the other day about it. And I would say that is my addiction. If I had to pick one thing. And so you look at it and well, it, there's many ways in which it's positive because you're, you're constantly learning. You're, you know, but uh, in terms of awakening, uh, it's getting in the way. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. And I'll just add really quickly that uh, there was a study done on that, that Googling everything phenomenon. And it was found that you're essentially outsourcing your own working memory. So you're, you intuitively come to know that you no longer need to remember anything because you have a tool that does um, it is an eternal infinite library, you know, that is Google. Um, so I, I think that's a pretty fascinating effect that Google has on, on the memory recall yes i'm glad you mentioned that one too because yes that's another one that i've noticed and as you get older and i'm older and your memory isn't quite as good as it used to be the temptation to rely entirely on your on your devices your electronic devices to do that for you is great so. i'll just confirm that happens when you're young too <laughs> yes I, I i know that it does but <clears throat> so, so Evgeny, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly. Uh, Evgeny, but uh, Evgeny is absolutely fine as well. 
Evgeny, okay. So, TMI says that long, month, long months or years retreats are not critical to achieving insight. <clears throat> Since regularly diligent practice, one to two hours a day is sufficient for progress. At the same time, Ajahn Chah said that solitude is essential for a meditator's progress, especially for novices. Likewise, Anapanasati Sutta begins the explanation about a monk that goes into the wilderness to be alone. And, um, yes, those statements really define the operating paradigm for about 2,500 years of Buddhism. It was in every Buddhist culture, uh, I can't think of any exception at all, basically the attitude was that if you were a lay person, the best that you could hope for would be to um, uh, accumulate a, enough, enough merit uh, through support of the monastic system and, and other good acts so that you could come back in a position to become a monastic, actually uh, also to become a, a male monastic, <laughs> so that you could become awakened. So what were, what, you know, they are echoing the 2,500-year-old tradition that says, says that, that lay people don't get enlightened. If you go back to the time of the Buddha, though, and there's extensive lists of uh, uh, awakened, uh, uh, of lay people that are awakened to greater or lesser degrees and who are identified as tremendous teachers of the Dhamma, etc., and so on. So, um, and, and the other thing that you find in the, uh, in the suttas themselves is a lot of people who are becoming awakened, uh, who haven't become, uh, who, who haven't entered into prolonged periods of retreat to do so. So the whole point of this is um, that in spite of what Buddhism institutionally has come to say, the original teaching, the original yeah, the original teachings of the Buddha uh, granted uh, that lay people become awakened and also that women become awakened because they're, they're uh, among, amongst the teris, the, the elders of the time, of elder women in the time of the Buddha. There are many of them who are identified as arhat. So um, you have to distinguish between the tradition that has grown up since the time of the Buddha what the Buddha actually talks about happening and what we in this modern era are recognizing is what has to happen. You know, uh, lay people not only can, according to the Buddha, become awakened, but uh, in the world that we're living in now, large numbers of people have to become awakened uh, otherwise, we're probably going to uh, uh, have a, a total cultural collapse and perhaps the extinction of our species. So you go on to say 
at Genie, you say, my line of work, chief executive officer, is generally known for being stressful. I sometimes worry that it will be hard for me to get beyond the current stage four unless I find a way to spend a few weeks or months in solitude. Uh, could you please comment on how important solitude is to the progress in early stages? Well, it definitely acts as an accelerant. And in a situation like yours, where you have, you know, you have a very uh, stressful life, uh, uh, then, the, the, then the opportunities either to reduce the stress in your life or to take some time away to do intensive practice become much more important. And I by no means intend, in, in, intended to say, don't bother doing retreats. To the contrary, I'd say, do retreats, do as many retreats, short uh, or long, as you have the opportunity to do. But don't feel, don't fall into the trap of feeling like, well, because I can't go on a, on three months of retreat every year, I'm, I'm never going to uh, be awakened. I'm never going to achieve uh, stage 10 shamatha and things like that. That isn't true. But your situation may be such that uh, it's going to be extremely advantageous for you to create the time and the opportunity to go on a retreat. If you find that the degree of stress that your experience is keeping you stuck at stage four, then a retreat might be just the thing it takes. You know, you'll go into retreat, and you'll come out at stage six or seven, and you'll be able to deal with the stress in your life so much more effectively. And uh, that's that's the place that that's the place that retreats take. Now, some fortunate person who can do numerous retreats um, of various length. And they're obviously going to benefit from that. You know, it's, they're obviously going to progress much more quickly. So we're not denying that. But my whole point here is if, if you can't, if you're very limited in the amount of retreat time that you can, uh, that, that you can in, engage in, and especially if you end up in a conversation with somebody who says, well, you know, you have to do a three-year retreat, uh, three years, three months, and three days in order to um, become awakened, you can safely and confidently say, I don't believe that's been true. That's true. I've been taught otherwise. And then you can demonstrate that, the truth of that. Thank you so much for the answer. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So, uh, just to, to add to that, I had somebody uh, just left yesterday. And uh, he's running a business, and it turned out throughout his retreat, he was here for, he's been here on retreat twice, and this last time I think it was for 10 days. Throughout his retreat, he's had to, uh, he, he operates a business, he's had to have business meetings every morning with his employees. And in spite of that, he's made, uh, made very rapid progress. He's also made really significant progress in the time between these two retreats when he was even more fully engaged in, uh, in his role as the, uh, uh, as the owner and executive officer of, 
a business. So, um, I mean, he's, he's not necessarily the same person that any one of you are, but what, it is, what he does is represent, he's a representative of the, the fact that, that some people have achieved very rapid progress in spite of a, not even being able to go fully in retreat when they do go in retreat. Thank you. So next we have Michael. Chuladasa, um, I think you skipped over Shannon's question. Oh, I did. Oh, you're right. I did. I'm sorry. I didn't see that. As practice progresses and suffering declines, questions begin naturally to arise as to what practice and dharma might mean beyond insight into anatta and emptiness of phenomena, beyond the end of suffering. Um, there is so much beyond that. Um, there are uh, two suttas, one where the Buddha compares the dirt under his fingernails with the earth. Another, he compares a handful of leaves with all the leaves in the forest. He says, what I'm, what I'm teaching you is, uh, is as the dirt under my fingernails compared to the earth. And so, on... There is so much more to this, this dharma than just overcoming uh, the, the uh, inherent sense of self and uh, recognizing the emptiness of phenomena. Those actually are doorways. They involve a shift in perception. You live in a different place from a, different, from a totally different perspective as a result of these insights that bring about awakening. And the effect of that is to open, open you up to much, much vaster possibilities than you could have imagined from the point of view of a worldling. Um, but I'll say something too about that is that the further you go, the more that you realize that um, the ultimate wisdom is knowing that you don't know, and you find yourself becoming more and more fully engaged with what is a mystery that uh, you're never going to be able to penetrate uh, but you're only going to be able to dwell in harmony with at an intuitive level, that at any kind of a, uh, at this point, the limitations of the rational mind and logical thought and everything like that have been, uh, they have been reached. <laughs> so, um, Yeah, there's so much that lies beyond the, uh, the uh, uh, as the as these insights deepen and as your understanding of of uh, what what you really what is really going on as that increases, the, actually the 
there is an, you become in contact with a very awesome mystery. Now, the other thing that happens is that particularly with, with anatta, recognition that, you're, that the self that you've been attached to is empty, and especially with the achievement of the fourth path, the arhat, and the falling away of this inherent sense of being a separate self. This combined with a really deep realization that everything, without exception, is not only causally interconnected, but interpenetrating. Then this gives, then what you do is you no longer are living from the place of an individual self, but as a process that is part of a much greater process and the, the dominant motivator of your action becomes compassion. The desire, the recognition of the suffering of all of these beings who are no longer separate from you. And so you respond to that in the same way that you once responded to the suffering of, of the personal self that you were attached to. You naturally are inclined to, um, to manifest that compassion. Uh, and this is, where, this is where the Mahayana, the great Mahayana breakthrough was the recognition that because we are not separate selves, and because of the interpenetrating interconnectedness of everything, the only way that this I that engages in the practice to become awakened can become fully awakened is when every sentient being in the universe becomes fully awakened because I am not separate from any other sentient being. You see that? But anatta, <clears throat> emptiness, paticca samapada, <clears throat> impermanence, uh, understanding the nature of suffering. All of these, that's the wiping away of the delusion. It's experiencing, uh, experiencing things much more as they are. And it's opening into something much greater. It's a beginning, not an ending. Is Shannon with us? I don't see Shannon, so she nope. can't respond to that. Anybody else who would like to respond to that, feel free. Yeah, the more I know, the more I know I don't know. My visual metaphor for that is you imagine a, a vast expanse. And within that is this circle. And the vast expanse is ultimate truth. And the little tiny circle is what I know. And the circumference of the circle is what I know that I don't know. Got it? So as the circle gets bigger, the circumference expands. The more I know, the greater the circumference. In other words, the more I know, the more I know that I don't know. And ultimate reality in this metaphor is 
infinite in expanse. So as I keep knowing more and more, as, as my knowledge expands, the more I know, the more I know I don't know. And we find ourselves, and this is, a, uh, you find much of this in the mystical descriptions of different, uh, of different traditions, uh, that what you, what you discover is not that you are the uh, omniscient holder of all possible knowledge, but that you find yourself uh, immersed in uh, a, a mystery that is so much greater than, than yourself, that you can only surrender to it. So I guess now we're at Mike, Mike's question. Let me check if Mike is here. Is Mike here? I'm wondering, what do you think, Ted? Would it be better to answer questions for the people that are here or not? Well, I mean, a lot of people can't make it. So in a sense, it's, it's a little unfair. A little unfair. Okay, I agree. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, well, what Mike asked, well, this is, this is a question that comes up a lot uh, recently. I'd really appreciate an explanation of how somebody can be an adept meditator and also engage in physically and sexually abusive behavior. If this practice does, in fact, incline one towards compassion for all beings, how can it be that there have been multiple cases of respected and advanced practitioners who have acted in this way? My practice has been incredibly valuable to me over the last few years. But I find that this is one issue which sometimes undermines my faith in the Dharma, as it seems to imply the changes are not as profound as many would suggest. Well, let me deal with the last part of that first. A lot of the hype around the Dharma and the awakening and a Buddha, and what a Buddha is, the elevation of Buddha to the statue, stature of gods with their own, uh, with their own Buddha worlds and things like that, the idea that through that all these magical things are going to happen when you become awakened, that's not realistic. That That is really, you know, uh, uh, that's magical thinking. But we have something here. What's, what's come up recently, there's a few people who are uh, in, in their studies uh, uh, you know, the, Mike's question is framed in terms of an adept meditator, but these studies are framed in terms of uh, people who are who claim to be awakened, or who are purported to be awakened, or who are generally recognized within the tradition that they teach or otherwise that uh, they enjoy some some degree of awakening. Okay. And what, one of the things that has emerged, and uh, Richard Doyle, in his book uh, uh, on uh, awakened consciousness, realizing awakened. realizing awakened consciousness, he specifically mentions this. Uh, it comes up uh, with Jeff Martin and Jeffrey's uh, exploration of all the, not only the original cohort of supposedly awakened people that he dealt with, but in all the people that have gone through his uh, uh, finder's course. Uh, 
you know, he, he also alludes to the fact that although we like to join, we like to speak of wisdom and compassion as being conjoined, that they are not as tightly joined, they're not as tightly coupled as we may assume. And uh, that a person can achieve great wisdom without really developing compassion. Um, there's a certain uh, baseline of true compassion uh, that develops when somebody awakens to the fact that they are not a separate self and that everything is, uh, is um, interpenetrating, then this gives rise to true compassion as, composed, uh, as opposed to the compassion of a worldly being whose compassion is limited by his self-attachment, his or her self-attachment. But this compassion that arises, let's say it's stream entry with, with this realization, it's, it's kind of a baseline. It needs to be developed. And I'd say that the Tibetan tradition, more so than any other tradition I know of, actually goes to great lengths to develop this, uh, to develop compassion itself, um, practices of lojong and so forth. Um, so compassion doesn't always go with wisdom, and somebody can um, achieve rather exalted states of spiritual wisdom, but still have a rather primitively developed compassion, and that that can allow them to rationalize their behaviors. You know, um, you're probably most of you familiar with uh, a Zen teacher who actually rationalized his. Uh, uh, sexual exploitation of female students as being acts of compassion by which he was helping them to break through uh, various psychological barriers that were holding back, that, that was holding them back. Now, we can look at this and, and we can say, well, this is, this is obviously not compassionate behavior. Look at the damage it's done to the the not only the women that he engaged with in this way, but but their partners and so on and so forth. If you're familiar with the story of this, and this this is not, I'm using the example of, of one particular Zen teacher, but this is true of, of there are multiple multiple instances of this. And the common thing you find, well, Chogyam Trungpa did this. He did things that were actually harmful to a lot of people and rationalized them as actually being forms of teaching and therefore acts of compassion in an attempt to help them overcome their, uh, their defilement. And so now we can see how if compassion, if wisdom is developed, but compassion is not, we can end up with a very wise person who ends up rationalizing uh, behaviors that are not, they're, they're completely at odds with uh, true compassion. Now, there is a further problem with this. I say the Tibetans, more than any other tradition I know, have focused on the development of compassion, but they've done it in an odd way. 
they, you know, if you're familiar with uh, Mathieu Ricard and uh, um, they did uh, fMRI studies of him as he was doing compassion meditation, and they found that the parts of the prefrontal cortex and, and uh, other parts of the cortex that were associated with pleasure and happiness uh, really uh, um, were really strongly activated when he did compassion meditation. Now, this is something, it's a fact about compassion that it does engender uh, pleasure and even blissful state. But if you look at the history of Tibet, of comfortable monks living in lavish monasteries surrounded by struggling patient, uh, uh, peasants, struggling peasants who were actually supporting these wealthy monasteries, you, you realize that the compassion that they're practicing isn't really compassion. It would only be compassion if they acted on the suffering that they saw. And so that not only can there be a dissociation between uh, wisdom and true compassion, but if we define, which I do, compassion as the compulsion to relieve the suffering of others, if possible, and having the wisdom and equanimity to distinguish when it's not possible, if we define compassion in that way, then within the Tibetan system, and this is the karma that the uh, karma of Tibet that the Buddha referred to as uh, explaining why uh, uh, China invaded. You know, he said it was the karma of Tibet to have that happen. This is what he's referring to: that somehow or another, in uh, over the course of Tibetan Buddhist history, they managed to make a further dissociation between the affective, uh, the positive affective um, experience that was that compassion gives rise to, and the actual act of, or the actual acting out of compassion to make change. So please don't be disillusioned by the Dharma as a whole because over its history, certain, certain traditions have introduced certain distortions and that these manifest. There's other things I could say about this as well. We, we create unrealistic um, beliefs about what it means even to be a stream entrant uh, and uh, even more unrealistic expectations for our hearts. And uh, as I've already told you, uh, Arhat is not the end of the path. In a sense, it's almost the beginning. Um, it's, it's the beginning of a much greater path that goes much further than that. But don't, don't lose faith in the value of this path, but be on the lookout in yourself and in, in the sources of your teaching for these distortions that have developed. Uh, so that you can avoid them, so that um, you can cultivate true compassion, which the best, the best way of describing how one manifests true compassion is in that serenity prayer, which is to uh, uh, 
house in order to um, fix the things that you can fix and accept the things that you can't fix and to have the wisdom to know the difference. Now that's, that's the expression of true compassion in a person's life. And someone who has that is not going to be engaging in behaviors that are uh, abusive to others or exploitive of others. And Matthias uh, Lindstrom uh, mentions that Shinzen addresses are, I have to go to that to see what Shinzen happened to say with uh, Dan Harris <laughs> on that point. That's what I have to say about it, Mike. Kevin, can you talk about the importance and benefits of slow, uh, super slow walking meditation? I think many of us, myself included, neglect it in favor of more casual, mindful walking, and perhaps out of aversion to the tedium or lack of privacy space. Um, how critical is it for our daily practice? All of the walking meditations are very powerful. Um, the different forms of it uh, accentuate certain uh, certain benefits uh, and there are definitely benefits specifically to um, super slow walking um, that doesn't make that doesn't mean that super slow walking or for that matter any other of the myriad of different techniques that are offered in different traditions is uh, is absolutely essential. None are. There are a variety of ways to achieve the same thing. But to get into that degree of focused and aware of focused attention and expansive awareness that is that that develops and becomes characteristic of super slow walking carries over in a very wonderful way to, to your sitting. And I know that many people tend to, uh, you know, I've, I've seen this so many times at, at retreats throughout my life, uh, not just retreats I've led, but retreats I've attended, that probably the majority of meditators regard the walking meditation periods in a retreat as a break. Uh, and it's not. It is a formal practice uh, with as much benefit, as much powerful, as much power, and is very complementary to sitting meditation. So walking meditation in itself is a very, very powerful method that should never be neglected, but many people do. Now, Kevin, you're saying that you... Uh, neglect the super slow walking, but you still do the more casual, mindful walking. Um, I would say, please, please try the other more intensive forms of walking meditation. I'm really glad that you do that. You do actually do mindful walking rather than just take your walking meditation as a, a way to take a break between sits. But um, please do try the others. Um, give them a good try. See if you can discover the particular benefits that they will uh, provide for you. 
And, and if, uh, if you find a particular method or technique of walking, um, you give it a good try and it doesn't seem to do anything for you, well, then that's fine. There's a lot of other ways to get to the same place. Okay? Maybe a couple of general statements about walking. You can think of walking as a bridge between the powerful mindfulness of sitting meditation and the powerful mindfulness that you wish you had when you were engaging in your daily life. Walking meditation is, it can be a bridge between those two things. The second general thing I would say about walking meditation is there's a certain complementarity between it and sitting. In, in sitting meditation, it's easier to develop focused attention on the breath. It's an additional effort to maintain a powerful uh, awareness, especially an introspective or metacognitive introspective awareness at the same time. It's easier to sink into some kind of uh, uh, unaware, uh, but single-pointed single concentration. And it has its own pleasant qualities to it. But it's not productive of insight and awakening. So sitting meditation, concentration is easier, but developing peripheral awareness is more of a challenge. Walking meditation is exactly the opposite. When you're out there and you're actually walking, um, awareness becomes very, very, comes very, very naturally to you. It tends predominantly in the beginning to be extrospective awareness, but as you're, you're combining it with, with sitting meditation, after a while it becomes a lot of introspective awareness. You're watching how your mind reacts to a sound or something that you see or something that you experience in the process of walking. In walking meditation, it's easy to maintain peripheral awareness. <clears throat> it is correspondingly more difficult to keep the attention focused on the sensations of walking. This makes the two of them very complementary to each other. Um, the strength of one compensates for the strength, for the uh, weakness of the other. And so combining the two is a really good way to increase the, the uh, rapidness of your progression in your meditation practice. The last general thing I'll say about walking is um, you'll find that I'm constantly reminding you to look for the joy, bring as much positive reinforcement into your meditation practice as you can. Walking outside, especially in... Uh, an appropriately conducive environment can produce an enormous amount of joy, which you can then carry into the meditation hall and into the cushion and greatly enhance the quality of your sitting meditation afterwards. So these, these are the immediate benefits of walking meditation, why it shouldn't be neglected. Anyone who needs to go because we've gone more than an hour, just please feel free to, but I don't mind continuing. Um, we have more questions that I'm uh, probably going to be able to get to today. <laughs>
Maybe we should ask Thomas to pick one of the five, assuming that that's the Thomas who's on the call. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. Michael Walsh. Oh, do you mean Michael Walsh? Yeah, sorry, Michael Walsh. Yeah, can you do that, Michael? He's not here. Yeah, he was on the call, but I think he dropped off. Well, he dropped off. Okay. So that doesn't work. <laughs> okay. Well, let's see. Let's see what we might find most interesting. Um, question one. Could you talk more about how analytical meditation can be used in the development of PT? There is a footnote in TMI that says analytical meditation can be used to cultivate PT, but little information is given. Could you discuss this, how it happens, and maybe recommend particular topics for it? Like Shuladas's link is frozen. Just having a cessation right now. Nice. He's calling from Kochi's stronghold, which is um, about 20 miles down a dirt road in the middle of the desert. And uh, he has one and a half megabit per second uh, DSL there, which is kind of amazing, but it doesn't always work. There he is. Okay. I, I'm back again. I was just trying to call in by phone. And <laughs> but fortunately, hopefully I won't be dropped again. Um, what was the last thing that I was saying when, when uh, you, you stopped being able to hear me? You were just reading the first question, and I think you'd gotten pretty much to the end of it, or halfway through, maybe. Oh, okay, good. Let me just get back to that question. And, um, uh, No, that's not really okay. Um, yeah, and I found that analytical meditation has really helped in my understanding of the Dharma, in my intellectual and creative life. I find many people ignore it, but I think it has many benefits. Well, I would certainly agree with that, and um, uh, that is a really important part of, uh, of the value of analytical meditation. Um, Michael is asking specifically how it can help with the development of PT. So analytical meditation can help in the development of PT by um, helping you to resolve 
um, any sort of, you, you see PT is directly related to the uh, unification of the mind. What impedes the unification of the mind, uh, one of the things that impedes unification of the mind is uh, internal conflicts of various kinds, uh, uh, including the entire gamut of things that get purified in stage four and, and then uh, at a deeper uh, level or, or more subtle level in stage seven. And analytical meditation can outside being used separate from from uh, from the actual practice of shamatha, <clears throat> things that come up that uh, you you can reflect upon them analytically in a way, uh, especially if you can reflect upon them uh, in in the context in the light of the dharma, can make it easier to. Uh, resolve these uh, these particular impediments to unification of the mind. It can facilitate the process of purification. This has to be done very, very carefully though, because, um, and if you follow the method of, um, of analytical meditation the way it's described, you can avoid, uh, it's easier to avoid the pitfall. Now the pitfall is that is that some something has arisen in your mind in meditation? Um, you haven't reached a resolution with it. You do an analytical meditation, and then rather than allowing things to arise uh, from the unconscious mind, that you let the one part of your your a mind that represented by attention get into its reductionistic and analytical mode. And it's often going to come up with explanations that are not, they're, they're not valid uh, and can be misleading. The other thing is that uh, some of these can be uh, of the nature that are hiding, uh, hiding what the real issue is requiring a purification. But yes, it does, it has many benefits and the way to use it is when something comes up in meditation that you feel like could deserve uh, to be investigated uh, from a more analytical perspective, do so. But also don't just think about it in a normal way do enter into that creative mode of problem solving that allows uh, the, all of the um, parallel processors of your unconscious mind to contribute, uh, contribute to uh, finding answers to questions or clarifying that which isn't clear. Um, the next question really seems very specific to Michael. Although Taylor says he'd, he'd be interested to hear how I explain it. And he mentions the correlation I draw between jhanas one to four and stages seven to 10. Um, in the interests of time, uh, why don't we leave it 
at that in a sense. I, I, I feel like Taylor has, has provided enough of an answer to that question for the time being, and somebody wants to go into it more detail, we can do that on another occasion. Um, question four, do you have any recommended sources for practicing the jhanas, the formless jhana, and the powers as TMI does not give much information of them, except to say it is beyond the scope of this book. Um, the only, uh, the, the powers referred to uh, are related to the fourth formless jhana, not our fourth form jhana, not the formless jhana. And the only one of those that I have ever intentionally and actively pursued is past lives. Um, as far as recommended sources for practicing the formless jhanas, um, I haven't looked that much into what other people have written about the jhanas, so um, I couldn't off the top of my head uh, give you an answer to that question. We're still with Michael here. His fifth question, what practices or techniques would one do to remember past lives? You've talked about having experiences that are like past life memories. Ignoring the issues of whether these are actually past lives as there is no self, how would one with strong concentration actually remember past lives? What is the technique and where could one read more about this type of practice? Um, well, there are basically two techniques that I use. One, which is, as I say, um, based in fourth jhana. And in, in that fourth jhana, um, there is an opening to what I describe as um, vast amounts of information from that would otherwise be entirely unconscious. The second thing is that in that jhana, much as in the dream state, uh, as sometimes occurs in the dream state, that uh, I preface this by saying that, that I find that all of our minds are actually connected, but the individual mind is not a thing, but rather an artificial barrier that separates uh, our mind from from everybody else's mind. And that's important because that way when you walk out the door in the morning, you know which office to go to to go to work or which, or which workplace to go to. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, from the fourth jhana, um, there, there, there are practices Actually, the one place that I think this may be described a little bit is in uh, uh, Shenzhen Jiang, The Science of Meditation, you know, the, the uh, Sounds True uh, set of CDs that he produced a number of years ago. I think he addresses this a little bit in talking about Fourth John, if I remember correctly. But it's, 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 not, a, it's not a method that I can describe in this uh, uh, you know, in this context, context, very, very simply and readily. But that, that is one method that I use. The other is a method of regression, that uh, you go back 
in your memories, uh, in your own life, to the point of the recollection of your birth. And then at that point, uh, you uh, can go beyond that and begin to experience recollections of, of other lives. And um, that is a technique that is um, it's, it's not a specifically Buddhist technique. It's, and it's one that I remember um, learning about from, from, uh, from a book that I got, and I can't remember the name of the book at all. I'm sorry, I apologize for that. But um, regression is an effective path to bringing up these kinds of memories. Now, I just finished by saying that I, do, I having done this, having, having done these past life uh, or other life practices, um, I initially did this um, because of, you know, I was running into strong opposition to those people who very, very firmly believed in reincarnation to the idea that, well, whatever it is that might be reincarnated, uh, it's not anything that you can, it's, it's certainly not anything that you can find within yourself. And so it's, uh, uh, you know, if you believe that the, the self that you feel you are is reincarnated, you're, you're mistaken. And I met a lot of strong resistance to this. So I thought, okay, uh, you know, and of course, everybody has so-and-so talks about their past lives and the Buddha refers in, in one of the two versions of the Buddha's awakening, he refers to experiencing past lives and everything like that. So I need to figure out what this was all about. And so I did the practices. And at first, you know, I, I can see how easy it is if you're predisposed to think of this as a series of lives that were your life like beads on a string and somehow there was so the string was somehow this self that was being perpetuated from one lifetime to another that entered into another body that was reincarnated and of course if you look at the re root of reincarnation it means re-meatification <laughs> so re-entering into another piece of meat um, but as I examined these past lives more and more closely, I realized this is more like watching, uh, you know, the, the hero in different movies. It wasn't me. Uh, there were things that I could identify strongly with in each of the, the, let's call them other life experiences that I had. But there was absolutely no sense in which I could say, well, that was that was me that those things happened to, that that was me, because it wasn't. It wasn't, it wasn't the self that, um, uh, that my uh, mental constructs give rise to. It wasn't the historical autobiographical self. It wasn't the collection. It wasn't the collection of personality characteristics, except for some particular isolated few of those personality characteristics. Like I say, there was something about each of those past lives I could resonate with. So the conclusion that I came to is that, is that because our minds are connected, 
that when you engage in practices like this, you will reach a point where um, you resonate in a particular way with somebody who has lived before, and that resonation will give you access to their memories and experiences. But that doesn't mean that that in no way suggests that there's some sort of serial continuity, that there is some thread linking the beads together. You know, a bead being an entity that exists between birth and, and uh, dissolution and death. And uh, even, uh, even further than that was that uh, some of my strongest, some of my strongest recollections had to do with particular, uh, with one particular individual uh, in Nazi Germany during World War II, which is prior to, I was born at the end of World War II, 1945. But then I had, uh, and, and so that opened up me up to having some other past life experiences that occurred in the same era. And I realized that I was having recollections of, of lives that were being lived contemporaneously. And I thought about that and I thought, well then, why, why would we regard this ability to tap into life experiences of people that lived before any different than the other closely related power of knowing the minds of others? And then finally, to add to that, is in my teaching experience, you know, I feel, I feel like I'm often channeling the knowledge and wisdom of uh, Dharma and meditation teachers of the past. And I sometimes hear words coming out of my mouth that are new to me. And, and somebody asks me a question, and I listen to myself answering it, and I say, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> so all of this has given me a completely different perspective on, on this process. And um, for those of you with the, with the inclination, uh, I'm sorry that I, my memory is not good enough to give you direct pointers, but there is, there is information out there about how to do these techniques. And um, I think I, I, what most commonly seems to happen is people, and you'll hear, you'll hear stories about this, people coming out of, for example, doing six months with Pauk or something like that and having had past lives, but it will be isolated to one or two. The kind of observations that I made were the result of, of making a large number of observations and following certain threads, like the thread that involved the particular, uh, who's actually an officer in, in the German army, but following those threads that led to, to having, quote, recollections, recollections of, uh, different individuals who were alive in, in the, at the same time. And then my personal experience uh, of sometimes feeling like I was channeling information, um, and this actually happens quite often, that, that goes beyond what I am consciously aware of that I know personally. So, I mean, I can't rule out the possibility that some of this is, is wisdom that unconscious parts of my mind have figured out that... Uh, <laughs> that I haven't become conscious of before. But that's about as much as um, 
I feel like is worthwhile saying about that. It should give you all some food for thought um, about this whole issue of uh, reincarnation. I am very confident in studying the suttas that on the one hand, the Buddha spoke to people in terms that they were familiar with and at no point was he trying to make the point that you will be reincarnated, uh, but rather uh, was making some different point. And uh, if he was talking to somebody who believed in reincarnation, he wasn't going to make them miss his point by engaging in some sort of dispute about whether this other belief was valid or not. Instead, he would just make use of their pre-existing belief to bring home the point that he was trying to make. So, so that's one thing about it. The other thing is, I think in so many cases, the reference to rebirth is the rebirth of the belief and attachment of personal self. That is what is genuinely reborn in every person. If you want to look at something that is a constant through a series of lives, but not through a single series of lives tied together by one thread, but through, uh, through multiple series of lives, is the rebirth in the individual of the conviction that they are a separate self. And in the process of arriving at the place of being able to let go of that, as a stream entrant to recognize that indeed there is no such thing as a separate self and as our hunt to recognize that or, or to have the inherent sense of being a separate self just evaporate and disappear um, that in the process of, of the practice of the Dharma we go beyond the self and then the self gets reborn well, if we look at any individual, any worldling, and we look at it in terms of the links of dependent origination, we see that as a description how on a fractal scale from moment by moment to day by day to year by year uh, that, uh, we're, that this cycle of the links of dependent origination, I'm speaking specifically of link three, which is consciousness, to link uh, 10, which is becoming, you see that that is constantly being repeated. And with every re repetition, the I is being reborn. This is the rebirth that the Buddha refers to. Uh, I, I have total conviction on that. And so I'll leave it at that. So we still have quite a few people here. Um, so I'm going to uh, uh, succumb to the temptation to continue <laughs> at least for a few minutes longer give another five or ten minutes um, I don't have a question per se but I just wanted to throw it out there for um, whoever asked the question about the formless jhanas that yeah. Leave because I, I typed it in the chat, but I don't know that that'll show up on the video record when this gets posted to Patreon. So I just wanted to throw it out um, there. Uh, at least um, as far as the pleasure jhanas go, uh, leave raising spins right concentration, in my experience, as a good enough instruction. Oh, yeah. 
get you in this form as Buzzard Donna's. So that Lee teaches up, that's for sure. Yeah, I can't speak for Luminous Johnnies, but for Pleasure Johnnies, that was able to get me there so I can help whoever asks the question. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, that's that you'll find that in uh, either Tina Rasmussen's and Gary Snyder's or Gary, what is his name? Stephen Snyder, not Gary Snyder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if not with him, with Shayla Catherine. Now, I, I, I do, uh, as I recall, uh, Shayla says, as, uh, as, and I agree with this, uh, as do many other teachers, that the form jhanas are the most important ones, not the formless jhanas. Although the formless jhanas can be eliminating as well. But uh, yeah, thanks for the mention of Lee Brazington. Yeah. So let's go back to questions and maybe do one or two more. Thomas Bernardis, I don't know, is Thomas still with us? No. Yeah, there he is, okay. So is Taylor. Good. Okay. So Thomas asks in deconstructing yourself podcast interview, explain that mindfulness can be used in training of wholesome behavior and the practice of virtue. In this context, you made a point to mention that you could expand on the topic of how this applies to livelihood, but not then. Uh, could you do that in this community? Yes. Um, maybe let's start by saying what. What do all all of the um, admonitions to virtue have in common with them? Uh, have in common with each other, uh, and that is they could be summed up by saying harmlessness, with the caveat that you have to recognize that there's a certain amount of pain and and suffering in the world that is inevitable. So we can distinguish between that pain and suffering which is inevitable and pain and suffering which could be uh, uh, avoided, that is uh, avoidable and unnecessary. So from that point of view, the practice uh, of right speech, right action, and right livelihood and you'll notice it's, we rarely come across the positive aspect of right speech or right action or right livelihood being spoken of. It's mostly presented in the negative, that right speech is not doing this, right action is not doing this, and right livelihood is not doing this. But we can carry it a step further that right speech is, is actually using speech in ways that are beneficial, that right action is performing actions that are beneficial, and that right livelihood is finding a way to live that, is, that produces the minimum harm and, and the maximum benefit to other beings. In other words, uh, living in uh, making a living and living in such a way that is positive uh, 
that your life is a positive contribution towards the reduction of unnecessary and avoidable suffering in general. Now let's look at right livelihood. Right livelihood is usually described on the negative side as not engaging in professions that bring harm to others, like selling intoxicants and weapons and being an assassin for hire and so on and so forth. Uh, <laughs> you know, which would make you wonder about, you know, uh, certain modern livelihoods like um, certain lawyers and things like that, certain ways of practicing law. Uh, but I, I see right livelihood as going far, far beyond how you earn your daily bread. It includes what kind of bread you buy and where you buy it, what kind of the clothing that you buy, how you transport yourself from one place to another. Um, all of the actions that are an, an, a necessary part of you living in the world, you surviving, you being able to practice life, right livelihood in the sense of making a positive difference in the world as a whole. In other words, a positive difference in the sense of uh, reducing the unnecessary and avoidable suffering in the world. So it's all of the other things that you do in order to stay alive and in order to, to uh, manifest that kind of right livelihood. All of those things are right livelihood as well. So that's what I'm referring to. And so what this means is that um, this aspect of uh, practice of virtue extends to all of the choices that we make throughout our days in different, you know, when we're, when we're in the grocery store, when we're shopping for a vehicle, or when we're deciding to buy a vehicle rather than use public transportation, when we're buying our clothing. And one of the things to point out in this is that we're limited in our knowledge, in our wisdom, in our ability to predict the future and the overall consequences. So all we can do is come to the point that in to the greatest ability of our, to our greatest ability to predict the consequences of, we act, of our actions, that we choose the least harmful and the most beneficial. This raises certain conundrums, like one example is you can buy a very inexpensive shirt made in Bangladesh in Walmart. Now, should you decline to buy that shirt, buy a more expensive one made in South Carolina, um, because buying that shirt contributes to the slave-like uh, conditions uh, uh, that... Uh, that exist in unsafe clothing factories in uh, Bangladesh like the one that collapsed. So should you say, I'm not going to participate, I'm not going to support and contribute that kind of exploitation of human beings and the infliction of great suffering. Or you could say, I'm not going to buy a particular electronic device that was manufactured in China in the kind of conditions that we know exist 
um, in, in Chinese production facilities. But you could look at exactly the same thing and say, now if I don't buy this shirt, then there's going to be even more hunger in Bangladesh. If I don't buy this electronic product that's made by somebody who is living under terrible conditions in China and is being very underpaid, then there's going to be even less um, employment available for those people in China. Now, which way you personally decide to go, I can't tell you and neither can anybody else tell you what's right or wrong in terms of that. You have to decide for yourself and then you have to act according to what you believe is right livelihood, taking all of those different factors and whatever other factors that you might want to take into account, you know, like how much uh, synthetic fabric does a shirt contain as opposed to cotton? And what are the implications of converting petroleum to synthetic fa fabric versus um, the uh, things that are a result of cotton agriculture? I mean, all, there's all kinds of things that you can weigh in this. And all you can do is the practice of virtue is, is to actually look at these things and make the best decision you can. Of course, a week later, you could decide that you should have made a different, different uh, decision. Uh, and uh, you would do something different at that time. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you can't predict the future. It, doesn't ma it only matters that you do your best in the moment when you make the decision as to what to do. I'll give you another example of right livelihood that came up in one of my Thursday night sessions in Tucson. Um, the two biggest employers in Tucson are the University of Arizona and, um, and Raytheon. Now, Raytheon makes, uh, if you're not familiar, Raytheon makes all of the, uh, it makes all of the electronics for guided missiles and uh, for oh, all kinds of things. It's, it's, it, it is a war industry com company. And um, I happen to mention choosing whether or not you work for a company like Raytheon as being an example of exercising right livelihood. And I'd stated it unintentionally in a way that made it sound like I was saying that anyone who worked for Raytheon was uh, not practicing right livelihood. And there was somebody in, in the audience who was very sensitive about this, presumably because she or her husband or some members of her family or something worked for Raytheon, but there may have been other reasons as well. Anyway, she says, there are some people that choose to work for companies like this, just as there are some people who choose to be in politics in order to see if they can't exert some kind of a positive influence. And, uh, and I totally acknowledge that, you know, and it gave me an opportunity to make clear that, that I wasn't intending, you know, I apologize for sounding like that I was saying that working for Raytheon was, uh, was, wrong, was not right livelihood. But making the important point is that none of us have the degree of omniscience to say that anybody else's decision is wrong. 
that what we do is we make the best decision that we can, make the best choice that we can from the point of view of right livelihood, meaning that you avoid contributing to unnecessary pain and suffering in the world and that as much as possible you do things that might reduce the amount of unnecessary pain and suffering in the world. And then not being omniscient, you've just got to rely on your best judgment. So that's, that's the things about right livelihood that I didn't want to get into in that podcast. And I'm quite happy to entertain anybody's responses to, to that right now in, in this group. Because there is a tendency to judge, right? I mean, I how often have you? Found that? No. Sorry. And you should never judge, but what you should do, what would be what would be positive and beneficial, is to gently and lovingly probe the individual and find out whether they had given some deep consideration to the decision they made, but not to judge the decision. One thing that comes up for me, Chula Dasa, when you when you talk about that is that, um, you know, we don't really have the capacity to do that sort of reasoning about every decision that we make. There just isn't enough time in the day, and you know, we have to do our practice and stuff. Um, so that's one of the patients. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so so part of I think part of the part of the calculus is just like not freaking out about it. Yeah, and I, it really, it, it really illustrates an important point of the practice of virtue. Anyway, what makes it the practice of virtue is that you do the best that you can as the limited, infallible being that you are to live up to the fundamental principle of harmlessness in your speech, in your action, and in all of these various things that are part of right livelihood. And one of your limitations is often you don't have time to think about it, but if you thought about it later, you may decide that, well, that wasn't a wise decision. If that, having that thought later brings you the benefit of the practice of virtue, because even though it was post facto, even though you can't undo what you, what you did, then you've still evaluated your actions and your intentions from the point of view of virtue. Now, what's underlying all of this is, you know, I used the example of buying a shirt at Walmart, but what was I going to say? <laughs> Well, I, I, that, that particular thought thread got, got lost. Anyway, um, yeah, except that we, we have to accept our limitations and we have to allow ourselves to be wrong and we have to learn from it. Well, yeah, I, what I was going to say. The decision to buy the shirt on Walmart, one of the factors that's going to affect a lot of us is 
boy, this is cheap and I can save a lot of money. And where is that coming from? That's coming from selfishness and craving. Or maybe you have a closet full of shirts and you really don't need another one. You just think this one looks really cool. That's coming from a place of, of selfishness and craving. That's one of the things that we can do in making these decisions. We can't predict the consequences of our actions that well, but we sure can get in the habit of looking at our motivations. And so it, that makes it virtuous. And even if we look at, if we, even if we do this post facto, it makes it, it makes it virtuous. Now, as far as not being able to predict the consequences, there's a little story that I like to tell illustrates that even when it seems obvious, our inability to predict the consequences can lead to exactly the opposite of the kind of result we thought it did. So this story takes place in Austria in the 1890s. And there's a man on the sidewalk who sees a runaway carriage uh, careening down the street and immediately in front of him crossing the street is a pregnant woman. So he leaps into the street, grabs her, pulls her out of the way of, uh, of this oncoming carriage. And the infant that that woman was carrying grew up to be Adolf Hitler. So by every possible measure of the event itself, it was a wholesome and positive act. And it reduced some, some avoidable pain and suffering in the world. But there was no way to predict. There was no way to predict what would happen subsequently. That's not our responsibility. In the practice of virtue, the only role of predicting the consequences is to try our best to evaluate whether this is something that will um, that will be consistent with the uh, principle of ahimsa or harmlessness as I find it here. And the other most important thing is to look at your motivations because every time you decline to act out of craving, you weaken the bonds of craving. Every time you decline to behave in a way that is self-gratifying or self-protecting, then you are weakening your attachment to the self. And so that's that's the real story behind the practice of virtue. And that's why right livelihood is a huge part of that. Okay, it's three o'clock. That's two hours. I think that probably uh, this would be a good good time to let you go and I I hope you enjoyed this and, and got some benefit and value from it. Um, I enjoyed it enormously. I enjoyed talking to you, enjoy your questions, and I love seeing your faces, being able to put a face with a name. There we go. Some of the faces I haven't been able to see are popping up. Well, thank you. So thank you all. Thank you for supporting us through Patreon. Uh, thank you for your questions. Thank you for coming here today, and thank you for creating a couple of hours of uh, what I hope is a positive and beneficial experience that will ultimately 
ramify throughout the entire universe. Thank you. Until next time.